From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department's list of exception requests for a continuing resolution includes provisions for subs and the Space Force, among other items. The department requests that the CR authorize the first two Columbia-class subs at the same time. Politico reports the Space Force request is for money to go to, the, to new Space Force accounts separate from the Air Force to avoid accounting complications. Senate has two more nominations for the Defense Department in hand. President Trump nominated Matt Shipley to become the next Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness. He's currently the Deputy Assistant Secretary. Rear Admiral John Kreitz, U.S. Navy retired, is the nominee to become Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. A draft solicitation of the Defense Information Systems Agency's common IT contract for the Fourth Estate is on the street. DISA will award the 10-year indefinite delivery indefinite quantity contract to one vendor. C4ISRNet reports the Defense Enclave Services contract could be worth up to $11.7 billion. The Pentagon's awarded the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure contract to Microsoft again. The department took several months to review the contract and determined the Microsoft bid still provided the best value to the government. Eric Crucius is partner at Holland and Knight. Eric, thanks for coming on. As I prepared to talk to you, I thought it seems like it's been years that we've been talking. It's been two years that we've been talking about this contract and we're still at the award stage. What does this compare to, if anything, that you've ever seen before? Um, this is a little bit on the long side for you know getting a contract up and running, especially one as critical as uh, providing cloud services to DoD. Although it's not unprecedented, I've been in contracts where you know we've had these starts and stops because the agency and the court and the parties haven't been able to get on the same page or get a definitive ruling in their favor one way or the other. So it's not completely unusual, but it certainly is on the long side uh, when trying to get a contract started, for sure. What do you take away from what we're learning about the department saying, we took another look, we went through this whole process again, came to the same result that we did before? I'm not terribly surprised. I mean, um, you know, what the, what the agency tried to do is through this remand procedure, I've been involved in a number of remands at the Court of Federal Claims, and it, and oftentimes what happens is the agency kind of cleans up um, some perceived issues with the um you know, with the award and tries to move on. And uh, nine times out of 10, the award goes to the same party. Now, Amazon clearly pointed out some issues that the court found were significant um, because the court granted a stay. Um, even so, um, you know, they still went back and reviewed that, that, at least that one issue in particular, among other undisclosed issues, and came back with the same award. I'm not surprised at all that Microsoft was awarded this again, only because this remand kind of procedure usually results in an award to the same vendor um, that originally had the award. You mentioned the stay, and Eric, maybe we should pull back for a minute, and, and you should give me kind of a run across the landscape of where this entire thing sits right now. Sure. Um, you know, it, you kind of need a roadmap to figure it out. Because exactly. There's been a, a lot of different uh, things that have happened. But we're really back kind of at the beginning in some respects of the protest where a protest was filed um, and now the, and the courts issued an injunction. Now the parties have to kind of litigate it out whether the grounds for the protest are sufficient or not. 
Um, so, you know, usually in, at the Court of Federal Claims, that could take about 90 days or so. Um, you know, there's not a statutory deadline at the court, but the party is recognizing uh, the inherent rush that needs to happen because um, the procurement has to happen, and even in procurements that are not as critical as this one. Um, the parties often work together to try to get a quick resolution. The court's usually very cooperative in issuing a fairly quick decision. So, you know, I think we're still at least three or four months away from a final decision, but this this case is a lot more complicated. We have an agency-level protest that was also filed by Amazon. So there's kind of, a, you know, a lot of uh, branches off this protest tree, um, and, uh, you know, it's going to take a while to kind of bring those, those all in together for a final resolution, I think, probably longer than 90 days for sure. I think the thing of all of this that happened last week that surprised me the most, Eric, is the language that Amazon is using to describe this. They put up a blog post that calls this politically corrupted. I mean, they're, they're, they're not going away anytime soon, that's for sure. No, not at all. And, you know, um, they have a reason to be suspicious based on the comments that were made about the procurement itself and about the uh, owner of Amazon or the largest shareholder of Amazon, I should say. Um, but, you know, usually when I'm talking to clients about what they want to say during the course of a protest publicly or not publicly, or what we say in a protest, I'm very careful not to insult my customer or my client's customer, I should say, because, you know, you want to do business with them in the future. And, you know, if you're saying things that are highly critical of the customer, they're less likely um, to want to award contracts to you, just human nature. On the other hand, I could see why they're upset about it. So, you know, it's 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 quite an unusual situation um, to have those kinds of comments made, but it, they're also in an unusual situation. So I could kind of see it from both sides here. Oracle's been protesting this contract since before the award. Is Does that matter at this point, Eric? It, one of the things that a couple different um, entities have said is, Oracle to Oracle, you wouldn't have got this contract anyway, so you don't really have standing. Is that a factor at this point, or is that kind of not no longer a factor? I mean, it could be. You just never know because of the changing pace of this um, award. Um, if Oracle can try to find its way in, maybe the reason it was not um, would have not gotten the award anyway is a re, you know is something that was changed on remand. Um, you know, they had that. Uh, Court of uh, Appeals decision that came out where the court said that they were right in their allegations, but like you said, they wouldn't have gotten the award anyway. Um, that's, you know, obviously a difficult position to be in where you have a, a wrong but not a remedy. Um, but it'll be interesting to see as this moves along, perhaps the procurement changes enough where Oracle can then get back into it and say, you know, the, the fact that we wouldn't have gotten it anyway changes now because of, of how different this procurement is. So we have less than a minute left, Eric, but with the procurement possibility of the procurement changing, it, what's the possibility in your view that the department could say, this has turned into such a mess that we probably would be better to cut bait than fish? We should blow this up and start over again. From an outsider's perspective, that seems like the best thing that can happen right now, is just get a fresh start. Um, uh, on the other hand, I could see that they, um, you know, they're already far down this road, and, and sometimes it's human nature. When you kind of get far down a road, you don't view it as a sunk cost, and you keep going because you don't want to lose the time that you've already spent on it. But um, you know, there, the, it, it seems to me that the Department of Defense is going to need a court to tell it to stop. It won't stop on its own. Eric Crucius, thanks very much, as always. Good to see you. Thank you.
Up next, using video games to identify the next cyber warriors. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what it'll take to recruit new cyber talent for the Army. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Army has new recruiting strategies to engage young talent to fill the gaps in the cyber workforce. The service uses Capture the Flag events and an eSports team to identify the next cyber warriors. Lieutenant General Benjamin Freakley, U.S. Army retired as senior advisor at the McCain Institute. He's former commanding general of the Army's Accessions Command. General, thanks very much for coming on. I see different organizations have eSports teams, professional sports teams have recruited their own versions and so on. What do they do and why does that make sense for the Army to help it recruit the next generation of talent? Well, good morning and thanks for uh, covering the story and telling the story of our great recruiters uh, out there. I think they're the hardest working non-commissioned officers in our services uh, trying to uh, bring the great talent in America and to serve our country. Um, for, since the all-volunteer force began in 1973, our recruiters have tried to find the talent where it exists. And in this case, uh, many of our youth today uh, play esports. They're very engaged with each other in a, in a highly collaborative, uh, engaging, and competitive environment. And so our recruiters have teams, the Army has teams to compete, but also to have a dialogue with them and a common shared experience to open the dialogue about what it is to serve our country. What's the connection to identifying people who are interested in esports and how they might apply those skills to other areas once they join the Army? Well, I think in large part uh, it's, it's to see how well uh, they uh, operate in the digital space. It's also to see how much they interact with each other. The military is still as technologically competent as our military is. I led our forces in Afghanistan in 2006 to 2007. Highly technical Air Force, Marine, Army, Navy, but if they can navigate the digital space or comfortable in the digital space, that's where they're gonna fight, that's where they're gonna receive information. So I think it's important that they, they can identify talent, skills, knowledge, ability uh, through eSports, through other platforms on the internet to see those who are very adaptable and, and comfortable in the digital space. Do you recruit that kind of soldier differently than you recruit another kind of soldier, General? Well, I think it's tough uh, because there's a lot of competition for men and women in our country who are highly skilled in uh, the digital space and in information technology. And they can be paid a lot more uh, in, in business uh, and in, in the commercial side than the military. So yes, the, you have to uh, look for them and talk to them about how important it is to serve our country, to use their talents to help us uh, be, more, be better defended, be more secure. And it's a different kind of fighting. They're not gonna be on the battlefield uh, the kinetic battlefield, but they're going to be a 24 hours, seven days a week battlefield in protecting America's interests in cyberspace. What does the what would you like to see the army and the other branches of the military do or do more of in order to recruit this next generation of talent? Well, actually, um, it's the nation. I think the military works awfully hard in recruiting and spends a lot of our tax dollars in recruiting. I think our Congress, you know, the Constitution says that the Congress shall raise and equip an army and sustain a Navy. And I think the Congress should speak more about service. I think business and other leaders should uh, talk about service, national service, 
is serving some way in our country, whether that's our frontline defenders with COVID are doing such a marvelous job. But we all should be talking about how important it is to serve our country. Our Congress should talk about service. Our local leaders should talk about service. Our business leaders should talk about service and embrace our recruiters and bring them in to uh, all venues where our young people are, in the high schools, in, in starting businesses. Uh, the recruiters, I do a lot of work. They're, they're now starting a new pilot about autonomous recruiting, which will begin in October, that their recruiters will no longer meet necessarily with the applicant, but they'll be able to do it all virtually. Mm -hmm. So I think the services are very uh, adaptive. I think our government and our nation needs to work harder on encouraging all to serve in some capacity. Are there specific tools that you would like to see those recruiters have that they don't now, or is it just that access that you're talking about, General? Well, I think uh, the military is exploring tools. Uh, they're looking at this virtual um, uh, recruiting capability, but you know, the military is a hands-on sport. I mean, you fight as teams, you serve as teams. You imagine you're down in a submarine, you can't be virtual. You're, you're in an aircraft with a small crew. You're in a tank with four, four women and men. I mean, this is not a hands-off enterprise. It's a hands-on team enterprise. But I think they should keep working with industry to explore any and all. You know, Zoom is such a great uh, tool that we use at Arizona State University. We've had as many as 300 members on a Zoom contest, breakout uh, uh, con um, conversation. There's breakout rooms. There's a lot of capability in technology, Zoom, Skype, uh, Microsoft Teams. So empowering the military with all that to have conversations, to be able to connect with the youth, to be able to connect with America's families, to talk about what it is to serve. I think all those are on the table and should be explored. We have less than a minute left, General. As an outside observer now with inside knowledge from your career, what will you watch moving forward to determine whether you think the Army continues on the right track? Well, I think we have to hold our standards for the best talent. And I think that uh, that really what sets us apart, it builds our non-commissioned officer corps. Uh, we, we can't reduce um, the standards that we've held. We've got to encourage more of America to defeat childhood obesity, to work on better literacy, to work on making, making sure that all Americans are competitive with only 23% of 18 to uh, 24 year olds eligible service. We need to change that number so more can serve. General Freakley, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you here, sir. Very well. Up next, China's fleet becomes the biggest in the world. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the United States must do to catch up. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The Defense Department's new assessment of China's Navy reports the fleet is already almost as big as the United States Navy's fleet should get in the next several decades. But the most important ships the Navy needs might not be Navy ships at all. John Kaskin is National Vice President of Legislative Affairs at the Navy League. John, thanks for coming on the program. What do you see as one of the missing links for the Navy fleet to be ready to execute on the national defense strategy? Well, Francis, thank you very much for having me on to discuss this uh, very important issue. Uh, what we have had in the uh, in the past uh, is a tanker shortage, and it's being exacerbated now. And uh, let me talk a little bit about what I mean. 
Even in 1977, when the president of the Navy League, Vincent T. Hirsch, was testifying before the Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee, um, that was on the uh, the uh, Transportation Energy uh, Act of 1977, he said that the 288 tankers that we had at that time were insufficient to support a war with the Soviet Union, and that uh, he supported this bill that would require a percentage of the oil imports of this country on U.S. flag tank. Now, the, the most recent requirement that Transcom uh, has published uh, publicly was 86 tankers, is what we would need it to support wartime operations. Against that, we have today uh, 45 uh, Jones Act tankers in the domestic trade and six in international trade. So we have 51 tankers against a possible requirement of 86. Now that would require us to take every single tanker out of the domestic trade that supports our economy to be able to support the wartime operation, which obviously is not feasible. And that 86 tanker requirement was based on the pre-national defense strategy scenario. And since then, the U.S. Transportation Command has been developing uh, new uh, mobility requirements and the latest mobility requirement study that was published February of last year didn't address tankers. So Congress asked them to do it, do it over again. And as of one June, they were supposed to have an initial draft and it's not out yet, may not be out by, by the end of the year. But even without that, we know that there are two major factors that are going to probably generate a higher requirement than the 86. One is attrition. Uh, during the Cold War, when I was in the Pentagon, we worried about uh, tankers being sunk by the Soviet Navy. Now we're worrying about Chinese as well as the Russians. And all of the mobility analysis that we had conducted today assumed no attrition except mechanical attrition. So we're going to need to replace those tankers. And that would add to the numbers. The second issue is that in a uh, Pacific War scenario, CSBA did an analysis, an unclassified analysis of the Chinese uh, scenario. And it showed that we would need uh, the, uh, 22 tankers that would be required to replenish oilers at sea. Why? Because our sources of fuel in the Pacific, such as like the Sasebo or Singapore, or, or even possibly Guam, would not be available in a Pacific war. In, in that case, the oilers would either have to double their distance, which would mean double the oilers. Now, the oilers were building a new fleet of oilers now, but they're six or seven hundred million dollars each, and buying another 20 is not affordable. So the alternative is to use tankers, which is what we were considering in the Cold War, to consolidate their oil with oilers. So the oilers would go out of the threat area and meet a tanker that would transfer their fuel to an oiler. But that requires those tankers to have console capability. Now, we only have at the most two, oiler, two tankers today that with that capability. So we need a, a large number of these additional tankers that would be support naval operations at sea. John, I'm very sorry to interrupt, but we are, I don't want to run out of time before I get a chance to find out what the solution is. Who has to do what? Who has to provide incentives to who? Because it sounds like, since you referred to the Jones Act tankers, that these are not just Navy ships. Somebody in the private sector is going to have to do this, and I wonder if somebody needs to incent them to do it since they haven't done it already. 
well, we don't have any reserve tankers. We have, uh, and so we're going to have to go uh, either buy them and lay them up like the, the Raider Reserve Force, but we can't even crew the, that fleet today. So that's not a solution. So we need to get more U.S. flag tankers. And, you know, there's three or four different options to do that. Cargo preference is one. Uh, Congressman Garamendi and Senator Worker have this Energy Transportation Act uh, that they've uh, proposed that would have crude oil exports, a percentage of them on U.S. flag tankers. Uh, there's the Volunteer Tanker Agreement, which the Maritime Administration is trying to rejuvenate, which would require the U.S. Uh, industry to work with uh, the government uh, and the Defense Department, MARAD and, and Transcom and DOD, to see how many of those JOSAC tankers can be taken out of commercial service and backfilled with other foreign flag tankers. That's still not going to meet the requirement. And then the proposal today is a tanker security program that the House has passed in the NDA that was starting with a, a 10 ship program that would provide a stipend like the Maritime Security Program starting at $6 million uh, per ship per year to in increase the number of tankers in the Pacific that would be able to have access. And we could try to put these national defense features with the console capabilities so that they could be used to support naval operations initially. So those are our various options, but the tanker security program uh, is the one that uh, we're supporting the most right now because it's there's really is, all the other options are not going to uh, meet that shortfall. And chartering ships off of the market, which is what we have done in the past, won't work anymore. It didn't work during the Cold War. It worked okay until the national defense strategy came out with peer competitors. We don't expect to be able to charter these tankers like we did in the Gulf Wars um, because uh, the Chinese and the Russians will make them unavailable to us. And so we're going to have to figure out how to, how to do it alone or with our allies. And uh, frankly, our allies don't have a lot of tankers to, to support us uh, either. John, so it's a complicated issue, and I thank you for bringing my attention, bringing our attention to it. Thanks very much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Government Matters continues in just a moment. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.